0: Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy.
1: Picture it. Lexington, 1965. The Cold War is at its height. The threat of atomic warfare has been looming for nearly two decades, inspiring headlines like If an A-bomb fell at Maine and Lyme in the 1950 Lexington Leader and 92 Physicians Told of A-Attack Problems in the 1951 Lexington Herald. In the mid-1960s, the Offices of Civil Defense and Stanford Research Institute funded a pilot program for planning nuclear fallout shelters to maximize survivability in the event of atomic attack. One city in each state participated in the program, and Lexington prepared Kentucky's plan. The 1965 fallout shelter plan was in the library's collection of Lexington city government documents. And I remember when we decided to digitize it, being more than a little tickled by its existence. Reading through it though, it drove home the realities our parents and grandparents lived through daily, escalating tensions, useless duck and cover drills, and wondering how Lexington would fare if an attack came. Seeing a chart that showed in black and white what was survivable and what wasn't, and that even with shelters, not everyone would survive, was a sobering experience. Like many of us in the Kentucky Room, this might be your first time hearing about this fallout shelter plan. Why? Deputy Federal Preservation Officer Catherine Plimpton noted in her master's thesis in 2015 that mixed messaging about how survivable an atomic attack was doomed the project. If an attack was survivable, then shelters may not be immediately needed. And if attacks were simply doomed from above, nothing would survive to make survival in a shelter worth it, even if you did survive in the shelter. By the time parts of the plans were implemented in cities, relations began to improve between the United States and the Soviet Union, lessening the threat of atomic attack in general. Today, Shelby Adams from the Kentucky Room joins us to read selections from the plan, available in full on the digital archive and linked in this podcast description. Take
2: it away, Shelby. As someone who's interested in this stuff, it was really cool to actually see like a physical this was here in case we needed it um, in 1965, which was a really intense time for America. (laughs) So it was awesome to, to leave through this and actually see names of buildings that are still standing in Lexington to see exactly what they had planned. And supposedly they were going to keep this updated, but I was not able to find a more updated plan. So this is what we have for now, I suppose. National, state, and local civil defense organizations have been engaged in implementing a nationwide fallout shelter protection program to complete the defense weapons program carried out by the Defense Department. The Office of Civil Defense is currently engaged in the following major programs, warning and radiological monitoring, communications and damage assessment, fallout shelter surveying, marketing, and stocking research and development, financial assistance to state and local governments, training and public information, and facility construction. The Federal Office of Civil Defense contracted with Stanford Research Institute to establish a pilot program, which would lead to a shelter plan, being prepared by one city in each of our 50 states. Stanford Research, in turn, subcontracted with planning commissions or other agencies in each state for the actual plan preparation. The purpose of this program is to maximize the number of lives that could be saved in the event of a nuclear attack by providing protection from fallout for our citizens. If the United States were subjected to a nuclear attack, probably only a few of our cities would be exposed to a direct nuclear explosion. The blast and fire hazards resulting from such an explosion would destroy almost everything within a limited radius, and existing buildings would provide little, if any, protection. A third hazard would be radioactive fallout, which could be carried by winds for great distances. This could present an extreme hazard to Lexington and practically every other city in the United States. Unprotected exposure to this fallout could cause reactions in humans ranging from minor sickness to death. On the other hand, persons who sought protection inside buildings designated as fallout shelters could face little or a greatly reduced hazard. For the United States as a whole, It is estimated that proper use of fallout shelters could save anywhere from 25 to 65 million Americans, depending on the intensity of enemy attack. Not just any building, however, is capable of providing the necessary fallout shelter protection. For instance, practically no home as ordinarily constructed would suffice. Some, but not all buildings as ordinarily constructed for industrial, commercial, and institutional use could provide protection in interior hallways or basement areas. All types of existing buildings could be used, though after certain improvements were made to their structure. Thus, the one objective of this plan is to maximize the number of people who could be saved in our community in the event of a nuclear attack by providing proper buildings which would shelter us from the hazards of radioactive fallout. The three challenges which must be met by this plan and which must be fitted together somewhat as pieces of a puzzle, are number of people who will need protection, number of buildings which are capable of providing proper shelter, and the amount of time available to reach a shelter after the warning has been sounded. There are approximately 150,000 people who presently reside in our community of Lexington and Fayette County, and an additional 5,000 people who daily come here for other areas of work, shop, or visit. So on an average day, our community would contain approximately 155,000 people who would require shelter. However, if our plan is to be effective for any one of the 24 hours in a day, it must provide shelter for a person whether he happens to be at work, at home, or at school. This means that many people should have space reserved for them when they are at work, a different space when they are at home, and even a third space when they are at school. In order to account for this doubling or tripling of protection for one person, we need not just 155,000 shelter spaces, but approximately 200,000 spaces. Our community contains over 40,000 individual buildings. However, the fact is that only about 185 of our 40,000 buildings are of a construction suitable for designation as fallout shelters. These buildings are capable of reducing the effect of fallout to at least 1 of its intensity outside the building. And furthermore, these 185 buildings do not contain the 200,000 public shelter spaces we need. Rather, they contain less than 140,000 spaces, which means that 60,000 of our maximum population must provide their own private shelter. The amount of time that our citizens would have to reach shelter would depend on how long it requires the winds to carry the radioactive fallout 80 miles to Lexington. The plan assumes that 80 miles from Lexington is the city of Cincinnati. For purposes of this plan, the amount of time available for reaching a fallout shelter was estimated at two hours. However, since most people would require some time to get ready before leaving the shelter. Shelters which are stocked by civil defense would contain only drinking water, crackers, and hard candy for food, first aid supplies, and Geiger counters. Thus, families should try to carry blankets and some other conveniences from home to their shelter. Additional time also would be required for standing in line to enter a shelter. Thus, it is safe to assume that only 70 to 80 minutes will be available for actual travel time to a shelter. It was decided that citizens of Lexington would have either 70 to 80 minutes of travel time to actually reach a public shelter, assuming that a warning would reach us at least by the time of the actual explosion. The basis for this decision is shown below. What is the estimated amount of time it would take the fallout to reach Lexington? Approximately two hours. How much time would be needed for people to get ready? 20 minutes of walking, 20 minutes of driving. If driving, how much time needed to park a car in an assembly area? 10 minutes. How much time needed for waiting in line at a shelter or moving to another shelter? 20 minutes of walking and 20 minutes of driving. How much time left for actual travel time to a shelter? 80 minutes if walking, 70 minutes if driving. A great deal of planning will also be necessary to ensure orderly movements of persons once they reach a building which provides shelter space. This ushering of people to the proper space within a building may be too difficult where only 100 or so spaces are involved, but those buildings, such as UK Medical Center, which contains several thousand spaces, will require a very sophisticated pre-arranged procedure to ensure that all persons reach a space within a two-hour time period. The distance that a person could safely travel in this time would be about four miles if walking and possibly 20 miles if driving. Inside the Beltline or New Circle Road, only emergency vehicles will be permitted, so these people must depend on walking. Outside the Beltline, people will be permitted to drive to their shelter. The forms of travel considered were by bus, auto, bicycles, and walking. The most flexible means would be walking, which also happens to be the slowest. Although autos and buses are capable of the fastest speeds, it is likely that wrecks, abandoned cars, and a large number of pedestrians would create tra- traffic jams and completely halt the movement of vehicles. Inside New Circle Road, the only vehicular travel permitted will be that of police, fire, ambulance, persons traveling to the public health hospital, and other emergency vehicles, plus any buses serving special institutional populations and given permission by the local civil defense agency. Thus, the challenge we must meet for today, 1965, is that of devising a plan which will permit 140,000 people To reach 185 buildings within 70 to 80 minutes and most of these people will have to walk a distance no greater than four miles. A challenge also lies in the need for 60,000 people to provide their own private shelter. In order to allocate the maximum population of 200,000 people to 140,000 shelter spaces in our 185 buildings, which can provide at least minimum protection from fallout, it was necessary to give special consideration to the fact that these people and buildings were spread out over the 283 square miles of Fayette County. In order to make this vast lane area more manageable, it was divided into five sub-areas, four of which are public shelter service areas, and one which would be a private shelter service area, where residents would be responsible for preparing their own private shelter. And, as might be expected, even within each of the four public shelter service areas, the people and buildings were quite dispersed. However, in each public service area, there was a dedicated concentration of shelter space in a particular section, and the location of such concentrations was used as a basis for naming each public shelter service area. Thus, the four were named the downtown service area, the University of Kentucky service area, the U.S. Public Health Hospital service area, and the VA hospital service area. The area having no public shelter is called the private shelter area. The Downtown Public Shelter Service Area contains approximately 35,000 shelter spaces to accommodate about 35,000 people who might be in this area during any portion of the average day or night. Dispersed throughout this shelter area are 86 buildings or facilities in 9 locations which provide shelter spaces. The majority of these buildings, however, are located in what actually is Downtown Lexington, around Phoenix Hotel, the County Courthouse, the Post Office, and the YMCA. And altogether, these buildings provide about 28,000 of the 35,000 shelter spaces available to this entire service area. The University of Kentucky Public Shelter Service Area contains approximately 67,000 shelter spaces to accommodate over 67,000 people who might be in this area during any portion of the average day or night. Dispersed throughout this area are 66 buildings or facilities in 26 shelter groups, which provide shelter spaces. The majority of these buildings, however, are located in UK or in nearby buildings like the Good Samaritan Hospital, College of the Bible, the UK Campus, Columbia Avenue, Clifton Avenue, Cooperstown, and UK Medical Center. And altogether, these buildings account for over 55,000 of the 67,000 shelter spaces available in this entire service area. The VA Hospital Public Shelter Service Area contains approximately 22,000 public shelter spaces to accommodate a little over 22,500 people. The 22,000 shelter spaces are dispersed throughout this area in 22 buildings located in six groupings. The majority of these spaces are located at the Veterans Administration Hospital. The remaining 12 facilities, which provide about 10,000 public shelter spaces, are located along Old Frankfurt Pike and New Circle Road. All of the people in this service area will be within four miles of public shelter. The public shelter service area contains approximately 14,200 spaces in eight facilities to house an equal number of people. The majority of these spaces, 13,000, are located at the Public Health Hospital, while the remaining 1,200 are located in four other facilities at Kentucky Village, Spindletop Research, Spindletop Hall, and the Kentucky Insurance Agency Building on North Broadway. All of the people, about 12,000, assigned to the Public Health Hospital will be permitted to drive. This is the only area where driving is permitted. The private shelter service area serves approximately 60,000 of our maximum population and they would have no public shelter space available to them. The persons in this area must provide their own shelter for protection from radioactive fallout. Plan books, which show how home shelters can be prepared in a basement or other spaces can and should be secured from the local civil defense agency in order that all persons in the unsheltered area can proceed to provide their own protection. The shelter plan will become meaningful to the community only if it is implemented, and by the same token, can only be implemented if it is adapted by and understood by the community. In order to provide each and every person in the community with full information on the plan, several different techniques and methods will have to be used in preparing graphic information for use, distributing information to the public, and explaining the information to the public. As for preparing graphic information for use, three items will be developed. One will be the 400 copies of this full plan report. The second will be a single sheet public information map containing instructions sufficient to enable any person to determine the location of his assigned shelter. Approximately 60,000 copies will be needed to ensure that each family business, establishment, and any other location that could contain people would receive printed instructions. The third item would be needed for speeches and presentations to groups and would include a series of 35 millimeter colored slides and a series of maps mounted on an illustration board. In distributing the information to the public, the 400 copies of the full plan report will be delivered to public agencies and the commission's mailing list and will be a small task. Distribution of the 6,000 public information maps will have a much more formidable task handled by having a local commercial address firm prepare addresses and entering them at the post office as bulk mail. The post office will then deliver them to each address. In explaining the information to the public, The first step should be a highly publicized television program occurring within one week of the delivery to the homes of the public information map. This should be followed by individual contacts, whereby any citizen could secure a personal explanation by contacting any one of several prepared public agencies, by group contact, whereby the planning commission and civil defense agency would take the initiative in making presentations to various community groups and by individual and group contact, through the use of programs on television and radio and articles in the local newspaper. The purpose of this chapter, a plan for today, is to enable our community to be prepared for such an unpleasant eventuality by describing for each citizen exactly what should be done to secure the maximum protection from the dangers of radioactive fallout. When 150,000 people are urged to hurriedly walk four miles to a certain building and then spend a few days inside such building under what may be rather primitive conditions, eating only a few crackers and hard candy, for instance. It is important that each person understand the nature of the hazard which calls for such strong protective measures. An atomic explosion, the first hazard, would come from the searing heat of the fireball. With a 5 megaton bomb, the resulting fireball hazard could cause fatal or severe human burns and set fire to combustible material as far away as 12 to 15 miles. The second hazard from an atomic bomb explosion would be the blast wave, occurring 20 seconds to a few minutes after the fireball. The blast wave travels at the speed of sound, about 1 mile in 5 seconds, and has the force, even at a distance of 10 miles from ground zero, to toss a person around like a toy doll. Within the 10 mile radius, blast damage to people and buildings would range from total destruction within 1 mile to light damage at 10 miles. Atomic bombs can be exploded in the air or on the surface of the ground, resulting in different effects. An airburst, for instance, will create greater fire and blast hazard, but less fallout hazard than a ground burst. Since a surface burst would create more widespread damage via fallout, this plane assumes a surface rather than an airburst. The third hazard is that of radioactive fallout. And this is the hazard that poses the greatest risk to Lexington and the majority of the other communities within the United States. An exploding atomic bomb will raise large clouds of debris into the air consisting of dirt or other material particles and such particles then would become radioactive through the effects of the bomb. These radioactive particles of dust or fallout are small enough to be carried by the wind for such distances as to make almost all of the United States vulnerable to its potentially deathly effects. Thus, cities may be exposed to fireball, blast wave, or fallout hazards. This plan is directed towards providing protection from the fallout hazard for the Lexington community. The fallout intensity that might occur in Lexington or any other community will vary according to the size of the exploded bomb, the location of the burst, the height of the burst, and the direction and speed of the stratospheric winds, which would transport the fallout. Since these variables are so complex, it is impossible to determine an exact arrival time or intensity for the fallout to which Lexington must be exposed. However, a time assumption must be made and, for Lexington, this time for fallout to arrive was estimated at two hours. The intensity of radiation from fallout diminishes at a rapid rate, For example, seven hours after a typical explosion, the radiation is only one-tenth of its original intensity. Two weeks after an explosion, the radiation would have decayed to about one-one-thousandth of its original intensity. The intensity of radiation is measured in rhodogens. Depending upon the amount of exposure to radioactive fallout, a person may suffer no harmful effects or may die. The means of measuring the amount of exposure to fallout is somewhat like measuring the amount of rain that would fall on a person standing in the open. As the rate of rainfall is measured in inches per hour, the rate of radiation is measured in roentgens per hour. Similarly, as the total rainfall is measured in accumulated inches, so is the total radiation exposure measured in accumulated roentgens. Thus, the amount of rain that would fall on a person caught out in the open would depend upon the rate of rainfall and the amount of time he had to stay exposed. With fallout, the case would be the same. That is, the amount of radiation falling on a person caught in the open would depend upon the rate of radiation and the amount of time he had to stay exposed. To a certain extent, buildings can protect people from radioactive fallout in the same manner as they provide shelter from rain. The extent of the radiation protection, however, will depend upon the mass of the building, since radiation, unlike rain, can quickly penetrate certain building materials. For instance, a home as normally built would offer very little protection from fallout since its mass and window openings would not be sufficient to halt radiation penetration. Whereas it would require 60 inches of solid wood wall to reduce radiation to 1 100th of the outside intensity, only 15 inches of concrete or two feet of dirt would accomplish the same protection. This illustrates why so few of the 40,000 buildings in our community are suitable as fallout shelters. All buildings in our community which were considered likely to afford protection were surveyed in 1962 and ranked into one of eight categories according to the degree of protection they provided. For instance, a Category 2 protection level protects somebody from radiation from 140th to 170th the intensity. A Category 8, the highest category available, offers protection 1 1000th of the radiation intensity of outside. In deciding what buildings would be used to offer proper protection from fallout, five factors had to be considered. The protection category of a building, the space needed per person, and the minimum number of shelter space that should be in a building, the use of unmarked shelters, and the maximum use of public shelters. Thus, the decision on acceptable shelter space where that only category two through category eight space would be used Each person should have 8 square feet or 500 cubic feet of space. A building should contain at least 10 spaces. Unmarked shelter space would be used if it met other criteria, and public shelter space was to be preferred over private space. Of the more than 40,000 buildings in our community, only 185, located in 46 groups, met an established criteria. These 46 groups are graphically shown on illustration 1.3 in terms of capacity and listed by name in Appendix C. The physical characteristics of our land play two corollary roles in determining the effectiveness of a fallout shelter plan. Physical barriers, which might impede the travel of people to shelters, the subsurface conditions, which would impede the construction of underground and below grade shelters. Thus, in summarizing the characteristics of our land, which would be important to the shelter plan, it can be said that there are no rivers, steep hills, or valleys to impede the travel of pedestrians or vehicles to a fallout shelter. Although some sections have underground rock too close to the land surface for constructing shelters, most areas have sufficient soil depth for any such underground construction. Underground shelters should be constructed with special precautions to make them watertight to ensure that groundwater will not infiltrate. As our population increases or shifts and as new buildings are constructed or old ones demolished or as other changes occur, some of the plan proposals will become outdated. Thus, the plan must be updated to stay abreast of these changes if it is to be of maximum value to our community. Also, the decisions of the plan for tomorrow, 1970, must be closely followed if the present deficit of spaces is to be overcome and if the spaces for future new populations are to be found. To ensure the proper updating of the plan, an annual meeting of several public agencies should be held to review activity of the past year. If the plan does not need revision, the agencies should still be informed of the meeting and what results were reached.
0: Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at L E X P U B lib.org. I'm Miriam and
2: we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.